0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Support for today's show comes from The Weather Channel, television's most trusted source for severe weather coverage. Go beyond maps and apps and dive into the science and stories behind the storm, because understanding our atmosphere is the best way to prepare for severe weather. Every season, every storm, every time you watch... Trust the Weather Channel. And now, enjoy the show. Here comes McEnroe and nets the forehand and now goes over toward the photographers. And he's going to meet them eyeball to eyeball. And the crowd reacts. He shouted something into the earphones of a courtside reporter. That moment in the third set of the men's final at the 1984 French Open still haunts tennis great John McEnroe. To this very day, every time he's in Paris, he's plagued by a recurring nightmare about that incident three decades ago when he lost his cool at a TV cameraman and the crowd in the stands turned on him, shaking his mental game and eventually costing him the match. Though he would go on to win Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in what was his best year on the tour, the French Open was his bitterest defeat, and the one that robbed him of winning all three Grand Slam tournaments. He talks about it in his new book titled, But Seriously, And on this opening day of Wimbledon, McEnroe comes on the show to discuss that infamous match, his legendary temper, his celebrated career on the court, and his long view of life and of the game he's played since he was nine years old. Another nine years later, an 18-year-old John McEnroe burst onto the tennis scene, and he surprised everyone by becoming the youngest man to reach Wimbledon's men's semifinals. He went on to win seven Grand Slam championships, including four U.S. Opens and three Wimbledon championships, earning fame for his impressive tennis skills, his volatile persona on court, and his legendary rivalry with Bjorn Borg. McEnroe contributed to five Davis Cup titles for the U.S. and later served as team captain. He became the top-ranked singles player in the world in 1980 and continued to finish at number 1 for four straight years in a row from 1981 to 1984. In addition to his seven Grand Slam singles titles, he won nine Grand Slam men's doubles titles and one Grand Slam mixed doubles title. These days, John McEnroe continues to play tennis regularly on the ATP Champions Tour. He has a highly successful career as a sports commentator for both ESPN and the BBC at Wimbledon, as well as ESPN at the U.S. Open and NBC and Eurosport at the French Open. He also founded the John McEnroe Tennis Academy on Randall's Island, where he continues to play an active role in getting underprivileged kids interested in the sport. Beyond his tennis career, he's appeared in films like Mr. Deeds and Anger Management alongside Adam Sandler, and television shows like Saturday Night Live, 30 Rock, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's a musician, an art collector with his own art gallery, and the author of the best-selling memoir, You Can't Be Serious, and his new sequel to it, titled But Seriously. Today, he'll talk about some of his famous arguments with tennis umpires and linesmen and how his temper actually helped his game in his younger years, but he says held him back later in his career. He'll talk about winning his first Grand Slam, his life after sports, and that recurring nightmare about his 1984 match with Yvonne Lindell. He'll handicap this year's Wimbledon Finals, give his characteristically frank take on the state of the game, and a few things he'd like to do away with in tennis. Plus, he'll even give me a few tips on how to improve my serve. Coming up with tennis great John McEnroe in just a moment. Today I'm talking with tennis great John McEnroe. He's written a new book called But Seriously? (laughs) Mac, thanks for joining me. (laughs) Good to be here. Um, I got to tell you what a great honor this is for me. You know, tennis was a big part of our family when I was growing up. My brother played uh, competitively. I was never that good, but my dad was a big tennis nut. In fact, uh, I think the last year that you played in the main tour in 92... I was at Wimbledon and watched you play Agassi uh, in the semifinals.
1: I wish you had seen one of the earlier
0: matches. I <laughs> do, too. And not I that do. one. You know, I remember my brother was rooting for Agassi, and I was there, and I was just thinking, God, I just want to see Mac get into it with the umpire. That was that was the highlight with me. And, well, and nothing's changed, apparently. <laughs> now, the,
1: the only difference is they pay me extra for it, apparently, <laughs> uh, on the Champions Tour. So that's the good news. The bad news <laughs> is that it became counterproductive in my later years, and I didn't um, uh, play better, which is really what matters. I mean, if you sort of go crazy a little bit and you're able to maintain your focus, for the most part, I was able to in the early years, but as I got older, had kids, slightly different perspective, mm-hmm. it seemed sort of weak, uh, or, and it was hurting me, even though I yeah. c- couldn't help myself from doing it anyway.
0: I think you say that when you were younger, it actually helped you. How does that work? I would think that that would be kind of counterintuitive.
1: Uh, Well, I guess a lot of the uh, players that I played against seemed to not like it a whole lot. So from that (laughs) standpoint alone, uh, that would help if it throws them. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, I felt like it gave me that sort of boost of adrenaline and some energy and some will that I maybe hadn't found yet. Yeah, Just sort of get so into it that you get (laughs) (laughs) semi-crazed.
0: Now, does it bother you that that's what people want to see now and that's what you're known for as much as your skills as a tennis player, maybe even more?
1: Well, probably uh, I wouldn't be speaking with you because the first book I put out was You Cannot Be Serious, which obviously (laughs) is my most famous phrase. And then this is But Seriously, which obviously is a takeoff from that. Yeah. And so I have to, part of the reason I wrote this book was really to sort of give people the idea that hopefully I have a better perspective and able to sort of uh, learn from things that had happened in the past and look at the glass half full as opposed to half empty. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of the big lesson for me. I'm not trying to necessarily impart lessons on individuals that choose to read (laughs) this, but at the same time... I think it's important to make the effort. I mean, one of the things that I believe is that you have to train, go out and work out to keep yourself physically fit. It made me uh, feel better as a human being when I get a good mm-hmm. workout in. I I haven't worked out yet today, so I feel a little bit like <laughs> I'm not quite right. Uh, but I also think it's important that you work at trying to sort of look at things more positively. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you need that type of effort. You can't just assume that your mind's going to sort of, as you get older, suddenly say, you know something? God, I've been pretty damn lucky, <laughs> which is true. But you, unfortunately, the human mind seems to sort of go to the things that you haven't done, mm-hmm. that you didn't accomplish, that are bugging you now, the, and that why didn't I do this better? Or, and and, it, and it, it happens still to me every day. So, and I've been pretty lucky, so I can imagine that it's even worse for other people.
0: You know, along those lines, you open the book by talking about this recurring nightmare that you've had every time that you're in Paris. What is that? Why is that nagging? Well, the
1: the 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 one event that I think would have elevated me to even greater heights in terms of how people viewed me in the history books was the French Open, which, unlike other sports, we do. We play on different surfaces under different conditions so that if you're able to win on all of them, there's just that much more of a satisfaction that you can look at yourself with even more pride. And I felt like I hadn't really addressed trying to be the best on that surface until the mid-'80s, and I felt like, okay, I, I sort of got that in order to show that I was the best, the best of the best, that I needed to win on that surface. And I came within five points. And for a variety of reasons, even that match and before and after, I'd never won that tournament. And so fortunately, I was able to sort of get a, if you want to call it a second career and commentating and being involved in the sport to still. So I go back every year because to me, the most fun is covering the big major events. So every time I go back there, even though Paris is arguably the most beautiful city in the world, I can't help. I wish I could, but it seems to crop up. I mean, friends seem to annoyingly bring it up too often. Mm-hmm. Um, you see it on TV or hear about it or it's talked about. It's hard to sort of avoid it. And then it's just sort of having to accept it. And it's it really is a microcosm of in a way of life, You know the things mm-hmm. that perhaps you should have done differently and didn't. But you got to learn how to at least deal with mm-hmm. them and accept it and move on. And so that's... It, since it did, did happen and does happen there, when I go there every year, usually at least once, I felt like it was sort of an interesting way to start the book because it's sort of what we're faced with all the time in life anyway.
0: Yeah, and the dream is from the 1984 match that you had with the Von Lindel. Um, I wonder when you have the dream every year, does Nightmare, it ever have I mean? a diff- different ending or does it ever vary?
1: It varies, but it always, unfortunately, I always wake up at some point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then I realize I've lost and it's the same damn nightmare.
0: Do you think that there's some deeper meaning or lesson to that? Or is it just that this traumatizing experience has been seared in your brain all these years?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I'm not really sure the answer. Um, There's nothing you can change. Mm -hmm. So uh, that part is uh, over. You can learn from sort of uh, uh, some life lessons perhaps, and learn so that the next time something remotely similar happens that maybe you handle it differently mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean I haven't made a ton of mistakes since then I have um and hopefully I've sort of opened my mind to more easily try to learn from them and that's the key I wasn't very i mean part of what made me good I was I was you know i i believed in myself and I believed in what uh, win, lose, or draw, even if I was acting like an ass sometimes, that I thought that that was the way to go. (laughs) And while I listened to people, I wasn't sort of taking it in a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And so um, sometimes you can get some great advice that you blow off and you sort of wish you hadn't. Other times you get too much advice. So this is all part of life and and trying to figure out... each individual decision you make. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I wish it was easier because I don't think ultimately this is sort of a crazy world we live in. And yet it's a beautiful world. And so it seems like to me at my this point in my life and having gone what I've gone through and experienced what I have, that I sort of owe it to people to sort of make the effort, really concerted effort to say, hey, I've been pretty lucky.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I have to ask, did you ever win an argument with an umpire in your whole career?
1: I don't believe I've ever won one. (laughs) I'm I'm like 0 for
0: 145. (laughs) So doesn't it seem like an exercise in futility looking back? Or how do you look at it?
1: Um, There was definitely... I took a course in uh, Stanford. It was an economics course. And one of the things we studied was law of diminishing returns. (laughs) And this was (laughs) definitely became less and less productive as time (laughs) went on. Because I actually believed the first, like, 50 or 100 that I was actually going to win an argument. (laughs) And then I suddenly thought to myself, run as fast as you can and run headfirst into a brick wall and see how that feels. And after a while, you realize, you know something that doesn't feel so good. The irony was that I probably got, I don't know, 50 times I was fined different occasions somewhere in a crazy amount of times and in in my day you could almost time it to where if you hit over a certain number you would get automatic suspension and i was yeah. you're playing virtually every week so in a way you had to make your own you did make your own schedule but sometimes if you really felt like burnt out you'd really make your own schedule if you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah and so i had uh, said something to an umpire that had set me over the $7,500 threshold that was going to give me like a three-week break, which I felt like I desperately needed. <laughs> and the night before the final, I was in Australia, Sydney, Australia. My father my uh, calls me and he says, uh, he was managing me at the time, and he said, uh, you won't believe this, but you, we had appealed a fine back in August in Cincinnati and you won the appeal. Oh really? The only one oh I ever God. won. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> Oh my feel God, good. why did I have to win it this time? So <laughs> I had to make sure good. I went out in the next round and got, you know, fined again.
0: <laughs> well, I know that you must get this question all the time, but how different do you think the game might've been for you? If the challenge system had existed around the time when you were on the uh, tour,
1: I would have been 20% better player and 40% more, uh, more boring. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, and you less know what interesting they pay to see. Huh? <laughs> uh well no, it's it it I didn't know that yeah. at the time. That was the irony. It was I was I couldn't believe that people took such an interest in it. Um but you said you were looking back, uh so I've had a little perspective chance to think about this. And as you can imagine, sometimes people ask me that type of question. What what have you been like with the challenge system? Nastasi always said, we'll figure something out. Well, you know, we'll, we'll go turn it some, some other place. And I was like, yeah, probably. So um, there's ways. I, I, I've got the solution that would take it back to that, which would be, the because now they have the challenge system, the players would uh, call their own lines. Okay. And you'll get like the trash talking and the distrust and the hatred and then, you know, thinking you're getting cheated by the opponent. But you have the challenge yeah. system. Okay. And then it would bring the crowd much more involved as well okay. because to me, tennis needs a jolt. Yeah. Even though we have these tremendous players, the greatest of all time and Federer and Nadal, for example, and Djokovic is not that far behind. It doesn't seem like it's certainly in the States not talked about uh, nearly as much mm-hmm. or in the same uh, way that it was back. I mean, I'm, I admit I'm biased, but it was, uh, it was sort of the heyday of tennis. And when I came in, mm-hmm. all these characters and personalities, and I thought, man, this is incredible. Because yeah. at first I thought tennis was sort of, I didn't really want to be in that sort of sissy game when I grew up in the country club sport and they want us to act a certain way and you got to wear your long pants like <laughs> Bill Tilden or whatever. And you're like, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> My goal was to be treated the same way as other athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, I could imagine that if you're on the hockey rink or you're in the middle of uh, Soldier Field in Chicago, where some of my buddies that I went to college with, I got to know, played. They're not saying hello, are you? How are you? When they come out of the huddle and they're about ready to, <laughs> and, and and yet in tennis, if oh my God, if we said a bad word or yeah. yelled at the umpires, this is completely outrageous. <laughs> I remember in the early '80s, uh, there was a, I believe it was a Mi- Miami Herald, and there were they did a survey of like who the most hated villains were in the history of the world. And it was like Hitler one, uh, Attila, the Hun two, uh, John McEnroe three son of Sam. And it was like, what the hell is, I think perspective is getting a little warped yeah. here. You know, Muss- yeah. Mussolini five, you know, I'm like, I'm three in these keys. Oh my God. So, uh, that was sort of got me thinking man they they really don't get it
0: are you jealous of what players can get away with now i don't think they get away with that much don't? actually no not, i think Even we got away we got away way you. more oh really you think so
1: oh yeah i think i mean i I'd, I'd like to throw them under the bus but uh, the truth <laughs> is is i mean you you hear a lot of curse words when murray plays for mm-hmm. example and they used to go back and listen to the tapes. I'm like, wait a second. I mean, this guy, the British are all into sort of, you know, act a certain way, and they, God forbid, you know, you'd uh, curse at oh, Wimbledon. And, <laughs> and, and, and you do have to be more careful there. But they, I went, I mean, admittedly, I was went off on an um, uh, linesman or something, but you couldn't hear it. Yeah. It was like sort of way far away from the umpire, and that was sort of the point in a way mm-hmm. until they went back and they in the tape like oh my god <laughs> and they don't do that it's amazing like for some reason it does a little annoying that the mics aren't right there they were when mm-hmm. they and they used to have a guy these uh, what do they call those guys that have this stick boon mics right you know right it yeah. right at net mm-hmm. and they as soon as i go to the umpire i could see it right in my face i was like son of a bitches <laughs> Just get it away from me. Now they don't seem to be far away at all. But now, I mean, generally, I think these guys are, I mean, I got to say, even Mm -hmm. in my time, I think that part of the reason why, again, that I'm sitting here talking to you about this book, is that people relate to me as a human being a lot more than they relate to these other guys. Because tennis is unbelievably frustrating. Yeah. (laughs) And it's hard to just sort of stand there and take it all. Forget the fact of how difficult it is to execute on a tennis court, the shots and do what you want to do. But then if things start going haywire and wrong, and then some yeah. guy screws you and I first be at Wimbledon, the, some guy in the back would be asleep, you know, when the linesman. <laughs> in would be like, hey, he might keep him asleep. He might be better that way.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think when you talk about the dream, your infamous nightmare, um, that you were being thrown off in that match, by uh, what was it like the the cameraman had someone speaking into his earpiece and the volume was up so loud that you could hear it while you were playing on the court right well that's
1: exactly right and now on the other side as a commentator for example when um the recent french open women's final was extremely one-sided in the beginning for mm-hmm. the favorite and so it's six four three live break points the producers already certain Oh God, we got to fill. We got to come up, you know, what are we going to do? Cause it's like a four yeah. hour show and we're an hour into the show. Well, somehow that person ended up turning it around and uh, winning the match. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of what was happening in that particular match with Lendl. They, it was probably the producer talking to the cameraman, look when the match ends and when Macron wins, yeah. which to me is sort of that jinxy type of thing. I yeah. shouldn't have, obviously yeah. I reacted pitifully and, <laughs> Gave the crowd reason to start rooting against me. Mm-hmm. And also, it probably gave my opponent, um, the infamous Yvonne Lendl, um, <laughs> a reason to think, hey, maybe he's not quite as sure of himself as he appears to be when he was won the first yeah. set, which I should have been, having won the first set 6-3 and the second 6-2 or something like that. And then I should have just cruised to victory. Instead, I sort of showed a chink in the armor. So that's something... Yeah that's it's difficult to live with you know i did wear my emotions on my sleeve generally and for the most part i was able to handle that but this particular case was uh, a brutal mistake
0: we're going to take a quick break and then i'll be back to talk more with tennis great john McEnroe. when we come back in just a minute hello fresh is on a mission to save home cooking HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste, and they even employ two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. I've started making meals from HelloFresh, and let me tell you, the ingredients always arrive fresh in an insulated, recyclable box. Everything comes perfectly portioned out, and the recipes are quick and easy to follow, so even an amateur like me can put together a great home-cooked meal in no time. And most importantly, HelloFresh's meals taste great. So great, in fact, that when Mother's Day rolled around this year, I ordered HelloFresh for my mom, and now she's hooked as well. HelloFresh is now offering light summer meals and has just introduced breakfast options. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll live to cook. So get cooking and do it for less than $10 a meal. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter KICK30 when you subscribe. Again, that's HelloFresh.com and enter KICK30. And now, back to the podcast. Well, you call him the infamous Yvonne Lindell. What is it that even to this day seems to rub you the wrong way about that guy? Pretty much everything <laughs> <laughs> okay no yeah,
1: but 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 I have to say, I do respect what he yeah. what he brought in terms of work ethic and mm-hmm. his dedication and his ability to learn from mistakes because uh, we battled in the juniors mm-hmm. we we knew each you know I played him in the French open Juniors, so it's not as if we didn't know each other. And um, I, his circ- hes like Ivan Drago, you know, in Rocky Four. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's like a machine. He became one, which you got to give him credit for. Yeah. And he came from a totally different circumstance in his life. Um, his mother was a Czech player. Czechs players have a history of success in sports, mm-hmm. uh, not just tennis, but other sports, because it was a way out. And so I'm sure there was a hunger, obviously, uh, that I didn't have. I had to find it in, in a different way. I grew up in Douglas and Queens in a, you know upper middle class environment and joined a country club, everything that seemed lame about sort of our sport. But it turned out to be a great sport. And I ran into a lot of great people. And I obviously, if you believe, which I do in a way, that sort of Malcolm Gladwell's outliers, where it's mm-hmm. meant to be 10, for whatever reason, hours. someone wanted me to play tennis. Yeah. <laughs> I can't figure out why that was, but at eight and a half, when my parents moved to a different location in Douglasson, it was a block away from the tennis court. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd still go down to the field where we play baseball and football and basketball. But after that was done, I would go to the court and hit against the wall or something. And then mm-hmm. some guy was there and said, Hey, this guy, Hey, you should send him to this other place. And then that's how that happened. And then, I met guys that I didn't know who the hell they were, but they turned out to be in a way legendary and imp- influential people to mm-hmm. me, you know, and sort of in our sport had had a lot of success and it was just one thing led to another, you know, until I get to the Wimbledon the first time I'm in the juniors I'm sent there and 40 years ago. Now, next thing I know I'm in the semis of Wimbledon. I mean, I'm making a long story short, but I yeah. walked into the, I remember the hotel and they had the odds cause they're big on gambling there. And it was, uh, <laughs> Borg was like two to one. Connors four to five to one. Garalitis twenty five to one. Yeah. McEnroe two fifty to one. I said, God, <laughs> they think I have that good a chance. <laughs> um, and just to have my name with those three guys was yeah. was literally like a dream come true. I couldn't even have thought it could happen that fast. And then to want to be sort of get that respect was huge,
0: yeah. and and to eventually get it. Yeah, you say that winning your first Grand Slam tournament is always a big game changer, both in terms of the player's own head and in how people treat you. What was that like for you?
1: Well, mine was a little weird because um, I played Vetus Gerolaitis, Gerolaitis, my late great friend, and I looked up to him in in the juniors. You know, I met him when he was 16 and I was 12. They don't you know, 16-year-old guys who got a lot of charisma and girls sort of falling on them, or by 18, I was 14. They're not hanging around with (laughs) (laughs) 14-year-olds. So, um I aspired to be like him in a way. I mean, the guy, mm. they rolled out the red carpet when he went to Studio 54, for example. You're like, this is amazing. I couldn't get in. I like would begged again. I'm like, I'm John McEnroe. I'm number six <laughs> in the world in tennis. And they'd be like, what? What does that mean? So it gave me this sort of hunger, but also respect for what he did. So in a way, it was... It wasn't quite what it was, uh, it was, what it could have been had mm-hmm. I beaten, say, Connors or Borg, because it was against Vitas, who uh, we had a like a, in a way, he had taken me under his wing a little. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell the story that uh, even when I beat him that day for the first Grand Slam, which obviously is amazing, I'm not saying it's not an amazing feeling, but it can be more amazing, sort of depending on other circumstances. He said to me. What are you doing later? And I thought, I'm doing whatever he's doing, because whatever he's doing is going to be a whole lot better than what I'm doing. I can promise you that. So uh, that's not easy to do, though. I mean, if you're 24, you've just lost the U.S. Open final. We grew up, both of us, uh, about 20 minutes from the facility. So... It never happened before, and I don't think it's – I hope it happens because I'm at this John McEnroe Tennis Academy in Reynolds Island, so I'd like to sit here and come back on your show in 10 years and say, hey, I got two guys that are in the finals of the U.S. Open. But Mm -hmm. the odds of it happening are slim and none. And yet, when that happened, they were sort of booing us because yeah. they wanted Borg Connors. Right, right, It was like if Golden State and she, uh, Cleveland had not played and they, the, the two other teams had played, like uh, <laughs> whoever they beat, uh, Boston. I mean, Boston has a name, but let's just, you, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. like, Boston, San Antonio, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> That's not the final we won. <laughs> <laughs> they were sort of pissed that they had to put up. And I'm thinking, we're two kids from Queens, for God's yeah. sakes.
0: Why don't we have more Americans at the top of the game these days? I thought
1: we only had 30 minutes for this uh, show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. They, but uh, I'll, I'll try to say it in 15 to 30 seconds, which is money. Yeah. Uh, the cost of it is, is e- even higher. The 1%, I mean, if you're lucky, it's 1%. Um, the athleticism that it requires because of the speed of the game, the technology is so much faster that you need mm-hmm. to be more athletic. Whereas before, Tennis players could beat athletes. I mean, you want to be both. Borg was the fastest guy ever saw on a tennis court. And there were some great athletes. Vitas was a great athlete, others. But it's even more athletic now. And the range, rangier, bigger, guys. Yeah. So now athletes beat tennis players because it's so quick that the tennis players can't even do their thing. There's no, there's not as much strategy. Guys are out there swinging for the fences. And so that because of that and because of the fact that the cost – and the cool factor, I mean, let's face it, you've got to have some of that for mm-hmm. kids who want to play, especially kids in inner cities that, you know, they're not going to want to yeah. go and say, oh, you playing that, you know, sissy game? Forget it. I'm going to go play, you know, football, basketball. Our best athletes have even – I played soccer in high school, which I believe helped my tennis because it's, you know, you know, sprinting, stopping, the movement of basketball is helpful. But if you take the size of a tennis court these days especially in a New York City where real estate is at a total premium they'll stick 20 kids out there kick a ball they pretend they really? don't even know what the hell they're doing yeah. and that's easier than when you have to really teach a kid tennis which is a very difficult sport to master and learn yeah. I mean even for the best of the best uh so uh that all those things together the the coaching and and the nurturing That's required. And the way they're going about it to me is a mistake too, because they're taking too many kids at like 10 years old. They're saying, you can't play anything but tennis now. You must focus exclusively on tennis. No, I don't think so. I think that's absolutely dead wrong. Because I think the other sports you you learn to, I mean, tennis, you're out there by yourself a lot, which is difficult. So it's important to have, say, teammates and sort of a a release, Mm -hmm. blow off some steam. Uh, build character maybe yeah. you, you'll lose it you'll you'll build some character yeah. losing in tennis but you will also have other people to sort of put your shoulder or head on someone's shoulders in other sports which i think is important because parents they see dollar signs in their eyes and then they say okay i'm going to homeschool my kids
0: mm-hmm.
1: homeschool your kids what are you talking about They're already out there by themselves all the time. Why the hell are you going to isolate them even more? So I totally disagree with that, but a lot of people do that. So now you get these sort of kids that aren't really, they're awkward and they haven't really sort of dealt with the real world. And they're sort of just don't know how to handle themselves. You can't expect them to do that.
0: Yeah, and those are the kind of kids that probably won't deal very well with fame eventually if they actually do make it as a tennis player.
1: They assume um, it will happen because they're told, and then yeah. at 18 they, they may have some that could all be over yeah. by nineteen 20. Uh, I've advocated, and I think it's important now, because if you see tennis, especially in the men's side, but even the women's to a certain degree, they peak at a later years. Mm-hmm. You know, and It used to be 18 to 28. Now it's 22 to 32, say, and sometimes even a little longer. So why not have them experience college, grow as a human being? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, do you don't want to do that? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> be able to handle themselves.
0: Well, the John McEnroe Tennis Academy seems to be addressing some of your issues with the elitism of the sport. Because if I have this right, you're actually reaching out to give underprivileged kids more of an opportunity to learn the sport and advance in it.
1: Yeah. That's my number one goal. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm five minutes from Harlem, you know, it's got a history just as you say Harlem, you, you know, you think of, well, there's a lot of things you think of, but you, there was also legendary times there and um, tremendous, obviously uh, history in Harlem as the Bronx, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's mainly New York city. I mean, I grew up in Queens and Manhattan but uh, th- that's difficult. It's one thing to, you know, and I'm, I'd am i raise as much money as I can, and um, I'm going to continue to try to do. That's not easy. I mean, there's a lot of great causes out there, and people think, sure. oh, I wish I'd get money to, so a guy can play tennis. I mean, a lot of what we've done is they won't be pro players, but even getting a scholarship in a Division One school changes their lives and saves, uh, I think we all know that it's ridiculously expensive college. And people can't, mm-hmm. most people can't afford it. Forget the people that, you know, really can't afford it. And so that is certainly something that I'm trying to spend as much time as I can to sort of make people more aware. And I've gotten, I mean, we've, we've done well and we get people to contribute, but you, I mean, if you get a 10 year old, well, guess what? That take 10 years later. <laughs> Uh, That money, uh, I wish I could tell you the 10 grand a year or even 20 would do the
0: trick, but it doesn't. Well, your own kids also play tennis. And in the book, you include a college essay that your daughter, Anna, wrote on what it's like to play tennis and be a McEnroe. Now, as a famous tennis father, how do you strike the balance between being a pushy tennis dad and yet still being supportive?
1: Well, I'm not sure I did a tremendous job in a way. I tried to. I, I tried to be the best parent I can be. It's the toughest job in the world by far. And particularly with this, um, I would have support. I mean, I would support them either way. But if they showed that hunger mm-hmm. and and the desire and the will that's necessary, uh, commitment to it, I would have encouraged it and allowed that and explained to them, do you know what you're going to get yourself into? Because obviously it's not going to just be how good is Kevin McEnroe. It's going to be what does he act like? Mm-hmm. Uh, is his temper like his father's that was my fault (laughs) is so uh, well it's my fault it's my fault that they have to deal with that oh yeah yeah it's it's probably partially my fault they have tempers (laughs) yeah um but um years ago when my son sean was playing in high school tennis uh they were playing at a club i used to practice at and um Eli Nastasi was there, and hmm. he was on the first court. I think my son was all the way down the fifth court at the end, and he was making a big commotion. And he was like, "Hey, shut up, macaroni!" He called me macaroni. <laughs> shut, he goes, "Shut up, macaroni!" He was kidding. He goes, "That's probably macaroni's kid."
0: Well, it turned
1: out it was. So, oh, <laughs> yeah, that hurt. Um, but yeah. nonetheless, it's been a, it's been a sort of walking a tightrope, needless to say, which is yeah. why, really, my kids in a way, never had that, you know, Mm -hmm. they didn't, I mean, I don't blame them. I didn't really push them to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have been extremely difficult because you don't see a lot of that in tennis. I mean, name a lot of successful pros that have had sons or daughters for them. And it's a very small list that have been able to succeed. So it's even more difficult when there's going to be all this attention paid upon them. So four Mm -hmm. of the six played high school tennis. Um, One played college, Kevin played for a year. He said he didn't like his teammates, you know, forget it. My Emily was, uh, who's 26 now. She was arguably my best, the best athlete of all my kids. And she chose to sort of not do it at all, really, Mm -hmm. even though she, it was in a way too bad because she was the one that was, was most naturally chose to go into dancing for a while.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I found in my family that tennis is great for a family, you know, it's like what do they say? The family that plays tennis together stays together. I was never very good, but we always enjoyed it. It was a great family activity. To this day, I have a problem with my serve. I mean, I look like a Muppet swatting at flies you when I try to serve. Do you have any tips for me? Well, the tip would be
1: uh, pick another sport. No, yeah, um,
0: that's probably good advice in no, my case. Uh,
1: the uh, serving, people take for granted because they look at John Isner and some. I mean, obviously, grow six inches would help. Sampras, these all-time great servers, it's not as easy as it looks. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go hit hit the ball 125 miles an hour. I mean, I wish I'd do that once in my life. (laughs) So um, serving is a a tricky thing, but it's like pitching. You know, if you're natural with like a pitch, there's certain things, there's similarities. And a lot of times people don't use all their bodies. So Mm -hmm. that would be like aware of use your legs, use your core. And I got a tip from my coach that was great. It was, if you ever hit your serve in the net, that means you're pulling your head down too quickly. And if you hit it (laughs) too far, that means the ball's dropping too quickly. So these are like the most basic things that 98% of people don't listen to. So you would greatly improve your serve if you just
0: were aware of that. All right, I'm going to give that a shot. Well, before we go, this episode airs July 3rd, the opening day of Wimbledon. Who do you favor going into I would
1: favor... uh, I mean, I think Federer is going to be the favorite. I think there's about a half dozen guys that could win it. And Mm -hmm. it sort of depends, because I haven't seen the draw yet, how that plays out in the Mm -hmm. next week. Murray's going to have an ability to say have something to say, because he hasn't done much. And Djokovic is sort of semi-panicking because he's fallen off uh, the map the last year compared to what he was doing. So there's a lot of reasons, and then there's hopefully some of these hungry guys, like mm-hmm. you know the guy I was working with, Milos Raonic, who got to the finals last year, and someone to come out of the blue a little bit, God forbid. You know, <laughs> someone that you go, okay, it's time for Grigor Dimitrov to finally yeah. step up one for, once and for all, instead of sort of falling over when these guys yeah. sort of... Sort of breathe on him. Yeah.
0: Certainly make it more interesting. Uh, how about for women's?
1: Women to me is very wide open because really? Serena's not there, and yeah. um, it's certainly uh, unpredictable. I don't mm-hmm. follow the ins and outs like this girl, Ostapenko uh, won the French. I had, I don't recall ever seeing her play. Mm-hmm. I was amazed at the way she played that she got away. I mean, she'd hit. She, talk about Serena for the fences. It wouldn't be the way I would coach someone. And I was watching, and she was down six, four, three love about to go down 4-love to like a steady uh, person who was three in the world, who had more experience, who had been in the finals, Halep. And I thought, this, this is over. It's going to be over. But then she sort of turned it around and won a couple of games. And I'm like, this could work. Yeah. It's totally anti huh. what I would sort of advocate. Uh, 64 winners, 71 wow. unforced errors, some incredible yeah. number. But it, it definitely it gets the other person uneasy. So yeah. the key to winning this uh, is, is, I would say, is there, there's more than one way to do it. Yeah. And you've got to figure out the way that unsettles your opponent the most. Whatever way that is, that comes yeah. most naturally to you. Yeah. And so for women, and guys for that matter, it's difficult to say because there's not a lot of people these days are that comfortable playing on grass. It's right. a different surface. They only play about a month a year on grass. So that's, yeah. it's, it. And, and arguably our biggest event is played on, on a, it's a two or three events <laughs> leading up to it and Wimbledon. So mm-hmm. it's five weeks. They've added an extra week finally. So it's five yeah. weeks for the guys to get to the end and the girls. And that's not a lot of time no. to sort of figure out a bit of the nuances. So they end up sort of playing the same way. So if anyone could figure out a couple sort of moves that, the low slice that is a no-brainer, they're going to do something potentially.
0: Yeah, you have no shortage of opinions. Uh, Real quick, what's one thing you would do away with?
1: One thing, in tennis, you mean? Yeah. (laughs) Take (laughs) it however you want. One thing I would do away with in tennis would be the linesman. I think okay. that if you had to pick... That's not surprising, it's a, it's a, I suppose. It, it's the least likely thing that will happen. Mm-hmm. The other thing, I mean, I could name five things, but you know, I think that they play for so long that I don't see whether there's not a tiebreaker in the fifth set mm-hmm. or the third set of a women's or fifth set of a man's because people's attention span is so much less. And I would eliminate let's unserve mm-hmm. because I just think that's one less thing to worry about. And I like a little unpredictability. You know, it's... Uh, as a commentator as a player the top guys i could see where they wouldn't want that because that sort of levels the playing field
0: well again the book is called but seriously john McEnroe, thanks for talking with me
1: thanks for putting up with me <laughs> anytime
0: <laughs> thanks again to john McEnroe for coming on the podcast order his book but seriously on the amazon or download the audio version for free with a special promotion just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. Look for John McEnroe Broadcasting Live from Wimbledon on ESPN or the BBC and learn more about the John McEnroe Tennis Academy at sporttimeny.com. Be sure to subscribe to KickAss News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes 5 minutes at podsurvey.com/kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at, at @kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com kickassnews. Or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.